This is a guy who tried to overthrow the government of the United States. This is a guy who is a domestic enemy of the US Constitution, and yet he retains the support of a large chunk of the American population. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy, and culture to an international audience. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast about US politics and foreign policy for an international audience. Today is our Trump has been indicted again, again episode. This is the third serious criminal indictment that Trump has faced this year. We're going to talk about the implications. We're going to talk a lot about the legal strategy that special counsel Jack Smith has in this case and how he has tried to reinforce this case to make it more likely that the federal government will win it. And we're also going to just spend some time reflecting on what has happened here, because what has happened here is truly momentous. A former president of the United States has been charged with essentially attempting to overthrow the American government, with trying to subvert and destroy the American democratic system. We all watched these crimes unfold live on television. We read about them in the newspapers. We read about them in memoirs. There is nothing in this indictment or nothing major in this indictment that is news. We knew all of this stuff, but it's taken two and a half years for the Department of Justice to put this case together, to frankly get the political will to put this case together and charge Donald Trump with these incredibly serious crimes that he committed against the United States. It makes, frankly, for grim listening, but we hope that you enjoy America Explained. If you do, please tell a friend about the podcast to help us grow or consider subscribing to the America Explained newsletter. You can find a link to that newsletter in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. There's a free version of the newsletter and a paid version. The free version brings you lots of content. The paid version brings you even more exclusive content and it also helps to support America Explained, helps to make it possible for me to keep making this podcast and keep writing that newsletter. So let's start by talking a little bit about the legal strategy that Jack Smith has used in this indictment. So Donald Trump has been charged with three different things. He's been charged first with conspiracy to defraud the United States. He's been charged with two counts of obstructing an official proceeding. And he's also been charged with one count of conspiracy against rights. Now, those are three different statutes, three different laws that he's been charged under. But what special counsel Jack Smith has done in this case is that he has essentially charged the same behavior under three different statutes. So that means that even if a jury throws out one of these counts against Trump, then there's still two different ways of finding Trump guilty for what he's done here. Even if there was, say, an appeal in this case, and one of the counts gets thrown out, there's still two there that can be used to to show that Trump did something illegal in this case. So it's a smart legal strategy. It is one that really increases his chance of success. It's also notable that in this case, Smith hasn't tried to do anything too ambitious. 
He's not tried to do anything that's too legally difficult. All of the statutes that he's used are well-known, well-used laws. One of them has already been used in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases against people who were involved in the insurrection on January 6th. And Smith didn't try to go for what would have been much more let's say politically explosive, but legally more difficult charges. So for instance, there is actually a federal law against insurrection, but Smith didn't charge Donald Trump with insurrection. That would have been a much, much harder legal bar to clear to prove that essentially the things that Trump said and the things that he did, although it was mostly things that he said because most of his involvement in, in January 6th and what happened beforehand was saying things to various people about what he thought they should do or what had happened in the election. Trump would have had a really strong free speech defense against that charge of insurrection because, you know, his lawyers could just say, well, Trump was just shooting his mouth off about what he thought had happened in the election, or he was just shooting his mouth off about what he wished would happen. He wasn't actually trying to direct an insurrection against the United States. But in, so Smith didn't do that. What he did instead was charge much, much more narrower laws, much, much more narrower crimes, that there's a much greater chance that these are going to stand up in court. The other thing that's really significant about this indictment is that even though people are calling it the January 6th indictment, this isn't primarily or even mainly actually about what happened on January 6th. This is about a pattern of activity that stretched back months before the insurrection on January 6th. It may have culminated in that insurrection, but Trump was engaged in illegal activities way, way before the day of the insurrection itself. And what it all began with, and the first kind of set of behavior that Smith talks about that he's charged Trump for here, is when Trump was conspiring to pressure state officials to fraudulently help him steal the election, even though he knew that he had rightfully lost it. So one example of this, and this really falls into the category of something that we knew was happening at the time, like we read about this in the newspapers, you know, days after it happened, was that Trump held a phone call with the Secretary of State in Georgia, a Republican official called Brad Raffensperger, and Trump asked him to essentially find him 11,000 votes. He basically said, Brad, I, according to the official results from Georgia, have lost this election, and I need you, the Secretary of State of Georgia, the guy who's in charge of running the election in Georgia, to, quote, find me 11,000 votes. And this was an attempt to pressure those Republican officials to corruptly use the power of their office to change the results of the election and essentially illegally throw that election to Donald Trump, even though he had lost. And Brad Raffensperger and the other officials who Trump asked to do this, to their great credit, they refused. They told him, no, you lost the election. It would be illegal for us to corruptly use our power in this way. So sorry, Donald, you're out of luck. Now, when that happened, when this part of the scheme failed, Jack Smith charges, and again, you know, we knew about this, we saw it happen in real time, that Trump and his co-conspirators moved on to another way to try to steal the election. And this was essentially to try to manipulate the Electoral College. Now, the way the Electoral College works, as you know, is that 
every state holds its own presidential election. So, you know, just take Georgia as an example. Georgia holds a presidential election. Somebody wins that presidential election within Georgia. You know, in this case, it was Joe Biden. And then as a result of that, Georgia sends to the Electoral College, which is like this big meeting of all the different states, it sends its electors. So Georgia has 16 electors. They go to the Electoral College and they cast their votes at that meeting for Joe Biden. So they say basically, we Georgia held an election, we have 16 electoral votes and all 16 of those go to Joe Biden. What Trump tried to do when the first part of his scheme failed was that he tried to put together fake groups of electors. He tried to gather people who would go to the Electoral College and say, we represent Georgia, and actually, we're here to say that Donald Trump won this election, not Joe Biden. Now, this is obviously, like, completely insane, right? If some random people just turn up from Georgia and say, we are the real electors, when, you know, the real electors have already arrived, obviously those people are just going to be laughed out of the Electoral College. They're not even going to get into the room. So, what Trump tried to do and the people around him tried to do was that they tried to manipulate the um, state governments of these states to send these fake electors to the Electoral College. And in some cases, they got as far as actually signing up groups of officials who were going to serve as these fake electors and then tried in various ways to get them sent to the Electoral College, again, relying on the corrupt complicity of Republican officials in various states. Now, the idea here was to try to create, not actually, I mean, they didn't expect that these fake electors were going to turn up and then they were just going to be counted and the real ones were going to be discounted, but they wanted to create what Jack Smith called a fake controversy. They wanted to make it look like there was some kind of legitimate debate over who were the real electors, who really represented that particular state. And then they would be able to manufacture a kind of constitutional crisis, a debate over which slate was real. And then they hope to use this crisis to, you know, what they were gonna do at this point becomes a little bit vague, but they hoped that at that point, they could perhaps persuade Vice President Mike Pence when he was presiding over the certification of the votes from the various states to somehow interfere in that proceeding, to somehow, you know, demand a recount or demand a do-over of the election, like maybe the election would be held again, just some way of creating a crisis that would give them an opportunity to seize control of the situation. Some of Trump's advisors, some of the people around him, even talked about the use of force. They talked about the fact that they knew that what they were doing was likely to create civil uprisings, to create protests or riots in major cities across America. And then they hoped at that point to invoke the Insurrection Act, to send in the military and actually start using force to control the situation and as a way of legitimizing Trump's continued hold upon power. One of Trump's co-conspirators actually said, quote, there have been times in the past when violence was necessary to protect the Republic, implying that this may be one of those times. The third 
set of activity that Jack Smith has charged Trump for is that he attempted to use the Justice Department to support him in these schemes. So he put a lot of pressure on officials in the Justice Department to, in some way, declare that the election had been illegitimate. So at one point he said to the acting attorney general, quote, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. So again, he was hoping to use the DOJ to advance this idea that there was some kind of legitimate crisis, some kind of legitimate controversy over the election outcome, and that that would again help him to create this febrile situation where maybe Vice President Mike Pence or maybe Republican Congress or maybe officials in the states would act to alter the outcome of the election. And that brings us to the fourth thing that Trump did. And actually, this is the only one in the indictment that directly relates to January 6th, although it didn't exclusively take place on January 6th. And this was Trump's efforts to enlist and then actually coerce to force Vice President Mike Pence to go along with these schemes. So as the vice president, Pence has this constitutional role to, quote, certify the election result in Congress. So the results of the election come to Congress on January 6th, and then Pence's role was to basically preside over the ceremony in which Congress would certify, and, and certify basically means to accept the results of the election and to legitimize them and say, okay, this is what happened in this election, this is who won. Now, Trump had it in his head that Pence was actually able to somehow insert himself into this process and overturn it. So to maybe toss the election to Trump or again to reject the certification so that then it could go back to the states and this controversy could continue or maybe there would be another election. Now it's actually a complete like legal fallacy. It's completely incorrect that Pence even has this power. He doesn't have the power to do that. All he had the power to do is, is it's, his role is essentially ceremonial. He just sits there and accepts the results as they come in. But Trump thought that he could pressure Pence to overturn the election result, and he tried repeatedly to do that. He tried to pressure Pence, to tell Pence to not accept the election results and not certify it. And this is really key context for understanding why, when the insurrection started on January 6th, the crowds outside the Capitol building were chanting, hang Mike Pence, and they were searching for Mike Pence because they believed that Pence was the person who was essentially, in, in their twisted worldview, stealing this election from Donald Trump, who they believed was the rightful winner of the election. Now, when the insurrection started, Trump reacted by not trying to stop it, but actually increasing his pressure on Pence. So essentially using this large, angry, violent crowd as leverage against Mike Pence to try to force him to carry out this fairy tale bit of constitutional practice of overturning the election result. And, you know, Trump actually sent a tweet on that day again kind of reiterating this pressure on Pence and this demand on Pence and one minute later was when the Secret Service decided to evacuate Pence from the Capitol because they thought the danger to his life thanks to this pressure that Trump was placing on him thanks to these falsehoods that Trump was spreading had become so great. So 
Those are the four different things that Trump has been charged for doing in this indictment. When we come back after the break, I'm going to talk a little bit more about how these cases might go down in court, what the challenges are to the prosecution, and also just to reflect a little bit on this moment in American history. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So Trump has been charged under these three different statutes, as I talked about in the first half of the episode. One of them, the obstructing an official proceeding, is the one that's been used already hundreds of times against people who are involved in January 6th. It's fairly, like, uncomplicated, basically just attempting to disrupt the certification of the votes on January 6th is itself illegal. Now, many people who have been charged for doing that, who participated in the insurrection itself, you know, they were physically using violence to try to obstruct that proceeding. In Trump's case, you have to prove that these things that he was saying and the ways that he was trying to use his office and the powers of his office, that that constituted an illegal attempt to mess with this official proceeding. One of the other um, laws that Trump's been charged under is an interesting one. So this is basically conspiracy against rights. Now, this is a law that dates back to Reconstruction. Reconstruction is the period after the Civil War in the, in the second half of the 19th century in American history, where basically African-Americans had been freed from slavery in the South, but there were still really, really big efforts by white Southerners to try to stop them from exercising their civil rights, to try to stop them from voting. So this is when the KKK become famous, right? The guys in white hoods and wearing bedsheets who use violence and intimidation to try to stop African Americans from voting. And this law, you know, so it was originally designed for that kind of activity, actual kind of physical intimidation of people who are attempting to vote. But it's evolved over time and now it's been used for all kinds of attempts to mess with the result of an election. So for instance, in 1933, some people were charged under this law because they were in charge of counting votes and they just basically lied against, you know, about who had got the most votes. So they reported that one candidate had got more votes from the other candidate when actually that wasn't true. And the basic legal logic here is that if you mess with the results of an election, if you try to corruptly change the outcome of an election, then you are conspiring to take away people's legal right to vote for the candidate of their choosing. So again, that's a pretty straightforward law. It's been used in lots and lots of cases that have some, you know, surface similarity to this. Although it is, of course, worth saying that what's happening here is completely unprecedented. It's for a former president to be charged with attempting to corruptly change the outcome of an election is something that has never before happened in American history. So there is only so far you can go with these precedents, but it does seem that, you know, Jack Smith is on pretty solid ground when you look at other people who have been charged under these statutes 
for trying to do analogous things, even if not exactly the same thing. Now, legal experts say that the main barrier that Jack Smith might have to overcome in these cases is that he needs, perhaps for some of these charges at least, to prove that Trump knew that he had actually lost the election and that what he was doing was corrupt and was illegal because it was an attempt to overthrow a legitimate election result. Now, with Donald Trump, that becomes a little bit difficult because the guy lives in a complete fantasy world of his own making. You know, you only have to spend, well, we've all had to spend years and years to an extent living in Trump world, listening to his constant barrage of lies and stories and fables about what's happening in the world. So it becomes a little bit of a challenge to prove that this guy who just completely lives his life in a web of falsehoods, to prove that he didn't believe the things that he was saying. And this is going to lead to some, I think, quite interesting defenses of Trump, you know, both in the media, you know, I mean, the conservative media, and also from his lawyers, where they are going to have to essentially argue that Trump is a complete pig-headed idiot who is unable to ascertain reality. They're going to have to say that here's a guy who has been told by every single legitimate authority, he was been told by judges, he was been told by state election officials, he was been told by his own advisors that he had lost this election. But somehow he kept the flame alive, that somehow he kept on to this belief that actually he had not lost that election. Now, that's an attempt, you know, that's a defense that you know, maybe that could work a little bit because it's pretty obvious that Trump is this guy who is, you know, he is a big-headed idiot. He is unable to ascertain reality, or at least he gives that impression to the outside world. So this is potentially a challenge for prosecutors. Now, obviously, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not like a lawyer. I'm not a legal expert or a judge. But I've read many, many legal experts talking about this case, and some of them are concerned about that. Now, other legal experts are saying that even though this may be a barrier and it may be a problem for some of these charges, it's probably enough to show that Trump used his office in corrupt ways to try to change the result of the election. Not all of these charges necessarily are only illegal if he believed certain things. It's enough that he behaved certain ways. And in fact, some of the January 6th defendants, some of the people that have already been convicted for their part in the insurrection, they made this same defense. They said, well, what I did wasn't illegal because I believed that I was acting to save the Republic. I believed that I was acting to stop an election from being stolen, not out of a desire to steal it myself. And this defense has been thrown out almost always by various judges who have heard these cases. So this matter of proving what Trump believed, I expect that it's going to become a really huge part of the public debate around these cases, and it's potentially going to be a big part of the legal debate around these cases as well, and a big part of what happens in the trials. But it's kind of unclear at this point 
what exactly, you know, what impact that's going to have on the outcome of the cases. So that's that's a, an overview of the legal landscape here. Now, it's worth saying that we don't yet have a date for this trial. That's a whole other topic, like when is this trial actually going to happen? Is it going to happen before the November 2024 presidential election? The federal government prosecutors will push to have this trial happen as soon as possible. But Trump's lawyers are going to try to delay it, delay it, delay it, because Trump's strategy in all of these cases that he's facing is essentially to try to get elected again next year in November and then to pardon himself and to use the power of the presidency to basically dismiss these charges against himself. You know, Trump has a political strategy much more than he has a legal strategy for facing these cases. So whether Trump will be successful in delaying the beginning of this case, in pushing it back far enough to allow himself to try to essentially, you know, win the election and then get off scot-free, that's not really clear at the moment. So I think we, we need more information to see when exactly this is going to happen. But you can imagine some really, really insane scenarios. So, I mean, it could potentially happen, say, Trump could win the presidential election next November, then he could be found guilty in October and sent to prison. And then he's going to sit in prison between October and January, at which point he'll become, you know, legally able to pardon himself, and then he'll let himself out of prison. So there's some really crazy potential pathways that are going to unfold in the future here, I have a post about this in the America Explained newsletter. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And in that post, I walk through all the various pathways that we have now between, you know, between now and the election and talk about the various hypothetical scenarios that might unfold. Now, it's worth saying real quick something about the political implications of this. And I will make it quick because I've said this many times before and I don't think that there's much new to say, but it's pretty clear to me that every time Trump gets indicted, that's good for him in the Republican presidential primary, but it's bad for him in the presidential election. So in the primary, it makes the media be all about Donald Trump. It makes it really hard for his rivals to kind of break through and to say something interesting. And because all of Trump's rivals want to take away voters from him, they feel the need to defend him. You know, the only way that Ron DeSantis is going to win the Republican primary is if he can persuade a good chunk of Trump voters to cross over from Trump to DeSantis. So these are people who are really big fans of Donald Trump, right? These are people that have stuck with him through everything that's happened so far. And you're not going to win over those voters by insulting Trump. And so when something like this happens and when Trump's base becomes completely inflamed and angry, at the media and the deep state and the liberals and the Biden administration, all DeSantis and the other rivals to Trump can really do is go along with that. They have to go with the flow. And every day that they're doing that, every day that they're talking about how terrible it is that Donald Trump has been persecuted this way, is a day that they're not making the case for themselves. And it makes it that much harder for them to break through and, and really make progress in the primary. On the other hand, in the general election, it's pretty clear to me, you know, people say that this kind of thing helps Trump. In the general election, it's not clear to me that that is true at all. I think most people in the population, the median American, is sick of this. 
they are sick of the Donald Trump show. And yes, that is a portion of the country, maybe, you know, as much as a third of the country that is passionately pro-Trump and sticks by Trump and things like this only reinforce their views that Trump is the only thing that stands, you know, between them and this horrible liberal establishment that wants to persecute everybody on the right. But that is a minority of the population. And I think, you know, we've seen that in 2018, in 2020, in 2022, Trump's antics were very harmful to the Republican Party. So I am not saying that Trump is destined to lose in the 2024 presidential election because many, many different factors influence the outcome of an election. But I think that been under two and, you know, possibly in a week from now, three different federal indictments for very serious crimes is not something that is helping Donald Trump to win over swing voters and to win that presidential election next year. But, you know, and and this is just kind of my closing thought, it is still really shocking to me. And I think we should never cease to be shocked by the fact that so many people do stick by Donald Trump regardless of everything that he does, everything that, you know, we saw him do, we saw him do all of these things two years ago. And now we're seeing it laid out again in a federal indictment, very clearly in black and white. This is a guy who tried to overthrow the government of the United States. This is a guy who is a domestic enemy of the US constitution. And yet he retains the support of a large chunk of the American population. And it is possible that he will be president again several years from now. Nothing like this has happened before in American history. Never before has a former president been charged with such serious crimes. And never before has it been clear that so many people will stick by a wannabe tyrant, a wannabe dictator in the United States. So we should never cease to be shocked by what's happened here. And we should hope that whatever the consequences, even if it does lead to a real social and political reckoning in the United States, even if it leads to, you know, potentially really, really dangerous consequences in terms of how the MAGA movement reacts to this, Donald Trump, if he's found guilty, should be sent to prison for his crimes because that is the only way to deter and stop either him or someone like him in the future attempting to destroy American democracy in the way that Donald Trump did between November of 2020 and January of 2021. Thanks for listening to America Explained. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode and we will catch you next time, which will be two weeks from now. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.